To the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 150. My name is Brando. Coming up momentarily, we'll be speaking with Mark Cantor, proprietor of Cantor's Deli, very famous landmark out in L.A., and also the author who had the, the foresight to document the early days of Guns N' Roses, but a few years ago, and many of you own it, Reckless Road, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. So, He's been a long-awaited guest on the program, so can't wait to speak with Mark. And returning to the program, this is going to be a special episode, much like when we interviewed both Roberta Freeman and Teddy Zigzag on the same episode. One kind of plays co-host, but it's meant to spark organic conversation between friends that just happens to be recorded and on a podcast. And returning since, um, I believe it was episode 58, uh, Guns N' Roses' very first photographer, Jack Blue. And if you're not following Jack on Instagram, you're doing it wrong. It's just all rock stars because Jack gets the, the best shots of the, the biggest stars and tons of beautiful women. Jack, you are you're living the life, aren't you? Pretty good. <laughs> women. <laughs> yeah. So he's bringing along a friend of his and... This has been kind of like a, a guest request since I started this this podcast, and I don't know. I feel I, I wanted to to wait until I got established to talk uh, to someone like Mark Cantor, who has been there for so was there for so long at the beginning of it uh, from Cantor's Deli, of course. Uh, the the famous book that came out in two thousand and seven, I believe, uh, Reckless Road, Guns of Roses, and. Well, Mark from uh, Cantor's Deli, I, I guess the first thing to ask you, is it true that you sold 10 million matzo balls uh, throughout the course of Cantor's Deli? Is that an actual factual number? I myself did not, but yes, Cantor's have <laughs> over the last 88 years. Uh, prob- probably more. Those numbers were compiled like 15 years ago when we stopped counting. So <laughs> it, it's going to be somewhere more, and a little bit more than that now. Well, it just... Um... It, it, it makes my, my Jewish heart swell with pride because I've never been to – even though I talk about a band from L.A. all the time, I, I haven't gone further than Minnesota yet. So I haven't been there, and I always wonder, are there Jews in, in California? I never know because I'm a Long Island guy, Brooklyn, New York City. We got Ben's Deli. I'm, I'm hoping maybe one day you'll, you'll franchise. I don't know if, ever, if that's ever – Well, it's hard to, it's hard to duplicate. It's, it's... If you don't own the land, it's too hard to keep up with the food costs and the labor. Delis have a lot of – Delhi has high food costs, but it also has high – everything's manufactured. You know, right down to the cheese blends, you make the crepe. You, it's, just, it's just – you don't take something out of the freezer and stick it in your drawer and then cook it when someone orders it. You're making it from scratch, so it's difficult. But by the way, back to the matzo balls. <laughs> matzo ball soup is still our number one seller on Postmates, so – we sell like you know 350 orders of matzo ball soup a week. I'm just on 
Postmates alone. I love it. You actually answered another question I was going to ask was, uh, what would your, be your best seller? So that's how I always knew we would hit it off, Mark. Uh, well, that's our best online seller. Okay. Uh, I, you know, it could also still be our best seller. We don't really check those numbers very often because the online reports, they send you an email every week of what your top five or six items were, and Must Fall Soup always wins. But um, so it could possibly be the same, uh, you know, in the restaurant. <laughs> we sell a lot of Rubens. Um, okay. That that's probably the second best seller. Jeez, great no. when you're sick. <laughs> Lots of ball soup is great when you're sick. Absolutely, absolutely. I actually had it last night at a diner. Uh, you know, I'm, wow, I'm very stereotypical. Um, so I had matzo ball soup last night because I'm a little under the weather uh, today. But enough about me. Um, how long have you two been friends? How long have you been having Mark's uh, matzo ball soup, Jack? How long have you kind of been? Uh, um, it's probably 1979. We went to a Sticks concert. <laughs> oh, that was Jack. Jack used to when Jack was in high school. They were getting they'd go like six in the morning to the down to the forum and wait, sit down, literally in the freezing cold, and men with orange jumpsuits would walk around. It's like something out of a horror film, and they pass out priority numbers at random. Uh, they're not in any particular order, and, and they just they just like. You sit quietly, and they'll give you a number, maybe. And then that tells you your place in line. So Jack used to go there and get tickets. And I had a friend, a mutual friend, Alan Stark, and he, you know, we were, Jack used to wheel and deal tickets. Sometimes he'd buy four, but he only needed two or three. So, you know, he would look to see who else might want the other one. In the end, we ended up going to a concert together in 1979, and that's how we met. I don't think it was sticks. <laughs> it might, well, it, it might have been. It, it, it's... Who do you think it was, Jack? I'm trying to remember. It was, um, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that Jack laugh, by the way. <laughs> if I had my yeah. concert book with all the ticket yeah. stubs, it would, I would know in one second. But my first concert I ever went to was actually Van Halen. That was right around September, October of 79. Wow. So it would have been soon after that. Okay. And I remember Jack felt bad for me because there was a Kiss concert coming up yeah. right after that, like, you know, the following week. And I wanted to go, but they didn't have any extra tickets. So that's I, I do remember that, but I don't. Re- I, I my best guess is we went to see Sticks, but it, it, I could be wrong. Yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not going to do any fact checking here. Don't worry. <laughs> it's a good guess. Yeah, I, I believe it. Um, so let me ask, and before I ask, I want to preface it with I I know it's it's never too late to say, even though it happened, uh, I guess, for you and your family a while ago. I'm very sorry for the loss of your dad. No, no, I know. I, I, you know that it's hard. It's a circle of life, and it's never easy. And you know, he, he, the last year of his life, we knew that you know the end was coming. But we were lucky enough to have him another year. And his mind was. It wasn't like he was like a vegetable or anything. His mind was perfectly fine. His body was just couldn't keep up. His kidneys and you know other other bodily parts. But um, even you know two days before he passed, he was still in good spirits as far as. Uh, you know his mind, so you know we are lucky to have him as long as we did. Well, that's a great outlook, and and the reason I bring that up, other than of course, you know, just being human and sending condolences. Uh, for me, my dad is the one who really got me into rock music. He's the one that would play the Doors on the radio, Zeppelin. So 
was it your dad or who got you into rock music? I guess why was Sticks allegedly your favorite concert? What? 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 It wasn't. My, no, Sticks was not my favorite concert. Your, it was just your a first. Concert. Your first. Was, no, my first concert oh, was, was Van, Van Halen. Halen. Right. Van Halen. You're Van and, Halen, and, right? And Van Halen is a good reason why anyone would go see Van Halen in 1979 because they were good. Um, so, but <laughs> um, no, we. You know, we. I'm just getting into music, and I liked Aerosmith and you know Ted Nugent and you know just whatever Van Halen. It was just Zeppelin, rock and roll, ACDC, all that stuff. So naturally, you're going to go to anything that comes across your town. You're going to go to. So you saw everything. But it wasn't my. It definitely wasn't my dad. It was. Uh, it was probably me stealing some records from my sister's record collection. Okay. And, and putting them on, you know, the turntable and finding, you know, Black Sabbath, We Stole Our Soul for Rock and Roll, and, and you know, Aerosmith, Toys and the Addicts, and that kind of stuff. You know, finding the records that your siblings have. Jacqueline was listening to that type of music. No, Jacqueline, it turns, out, it turns out that Jacqueline only bought that Black Sabbath record, my sister Jacqueline, because she had a crush on a guy that liked Black Sabbath, so she thought if she had a Black Sabbath record and the that he would think she was cool. But in the end, <laughs> there was no way in hell she liked Black Sabbath. But now the funny thing is she's friends with Ozzy, and she goes to see Ozzy. But um, that was that. Wow. And my dad definitely didn't get us into music. But funny thing is, being working in the 60s at Canners, he was right in the middle of the summer of love with the doors and, you know, everybody, the mamas and papas and the birds and just all those, you know, Jimi Hendrix, whatever. They all came through here one way or the other, the Yardbirds. And so he dealt with them in one way or another, but he was too busy to really. Uh, he liked Harry Bel- Belafonte, is what he liked. <laughs> okay, fair enough. No, I'm curious because, and I asked Jack uh, the, the similar kind of line of questioning or, or thinking when we had him on. And that's, you know, for me, like, did you know that you were going to be in the family business? My dad didn't, he was a dentist. He did not want me to be in the family business. I would love to have been a rock star, but I have no talent, so I went the radio route. For you, did you always did you knew did you want to be uh, involved in the family business, but kind of dabbled in the it, rock star it, life? It, like, how did that come qu- about? You know? It's a good question. I was first of all, I wasn't a great student, so I wasn't going to really be able to get a degree or go to college. Uh, I just was a little dyslexic, and I just didn't like school. I made it through high school, but. That was about it. But it, when I was, it was a summer of the 11th grade back in 1982, and uh, it just it was the first day of summer. My dad said, "You're gonna, you're going to work." So uh, they put me on as a busboy uh, for four dollars an hour. And uh, after a couple of weeks, a cook needed to go, a fry cook needed to go take a vacation. And I, for, as a kid, I always went in the kitchen, made my own food and whatever. Sometimes I'd even work on someone else's food if it was on the grill. Uh, but uh, so I took that spot for that vacation, and after when that cook came back, I then transferred into the deli. But long story short, about three months into this, uh, my dad hurt his back really bad, and he was in traction. He was in the hospital. So um, what happened was, 100% of his responsibilities fell on me. And people would, you know, my dad was like the guy that would loan you money, the guy that would give you advice in your family, because uh, they, they looked up to him. So you know. All of a sudden, people are coming to me with their issues at home in their home life, and and, and you know they they call in sick. I got to figure out how to replace them. This equipment breaks. My dad used to fix that. I have to fix it. So three months in, is he was out for three months, and by the time he came back, I was already in hook, line, and sinker, uh-huh. and and I I didn't look back. By the time I was, you know, by the time say 1984, I was already they put me in charge and. 
I was pretty, you know, I had to fire the bartender when I was 19 who used to serve me a Shirley Temple when I was five. Wow. So that, that was, you know, <laughs> that was a little weird. But, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I learned how to fix things um, through my dad. He used to be a mechanic, and he, he just knew how to keep all the equipment running. And the few things I didn't know I learned from people that would come, like a refrigeration technician would come to fix something, so I'd go help him. And by the time I was done helping him, I would, you know, I saw what he did, and so next time I knew how to do it. Same with plumbing, and my dad taught me electrical. So now, I mean, ever since really like 1990, I've done every single repair that there is to do here. Oh, wow. Other than an exception that when we had a fire in 1988, I'm sorry, uh, 2008, and we lost 10 pieces of refrigeration equipment, I had no choice but to call for help because I couldn't fix it all in the time we needed it fixed. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were two or three of us working on it, getting it going. But, yeah, so I, I've kind of made myself a slave by learning that stuff because uh, I can't go anywhere. I fix elevators, everything else. So, And we have three elevators here, so Jeez. over 50 different refrigerations, two giant air conditioners. So in, a, in the restaurant this size, you know, we have over 150 employees open 24 hours a day. It gets a lot of wear and tear, and you know, drains back up and whatever. So I, you know, you just have to put out these fires as they come up. So that's pretty much. I never, I, I, I jumped in the deep end and, and, and been swimming since. I had to bust the pipe at my house one day, and then I called Mark. I need help, and, he, and Mark came down and helped me even fix fix the pipe. <laughs> it came in handy. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. That's what I. Yeah. You know, you get rewarded. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe not financially, but you get rewarded. Uh, well, you, I guess we do get rewarded financially because if we didn't have to call, if we had to call somebody, it would cost a lot of money. But it's more so getting it done quicker and, and you know, like on a Friday night at 2 in the morning, good luck finding somebody. And if you do, you think they're going to have the parts. They're not. But um, so you, but you get a reward mentally because something is not working and then you get it working. Your, your, your brain rewards you for that. You, f- you feel good. You've, you've accomplished something. There's something to be said that like every inch of your blood, sweat, and tears is in that place. You're not just, you know, running it. You're 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 literally you're, you're building it or you're keeping it built. You're keeping it alive, keeping it working. Yeah, well, running it would be like developing the menu and doing those things, which I also take care of. You know, the hiring and, and making schedules. I still make the schedules for more than half the people that work here. Uh, but it's the other half is the fixing. So there's like I do like three different jobs. So with, with all that, I mean, I, that, and that's an understatement. With all of that, and, and of course, you only had a certain amount of maybe know what's to come in that industry. I mean, yes, it's a family business, so I, I'm sure you knew the ins and outs. But when you were out with Jack, uh, watching Guns N' Roses or other bands in the early days, taking photographs, going to shows, there was no part of you that said, you know what, maybe. I, I want to be in the rock star. I want to be a photographer like Jack, or I want to be something involved more in the in the music world. Or you just knew that you know you and Locks were meant to be. Well, no, I was already. Well, actually, it was '82, so it was the same summer that I started working here when I started taking pictures because we uh, we we go to concerts with Jack from like, like starting in '79, and Jack would always sneak his camera in and take really good pictures, and that was what he did. And we always, and we and Jack had the best pictures. Everyone knew that. Uh, but what happened was, uh, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Alan Holsworth was playing the Roxy in April of 1982, and we all knew that Eddie Van Halen was going to show up and be there because that was his idol. 
and that he was gonna, they were going to jam a song together. But Jack had a lighting gig that night because he also does lighting, and he wasn't able to go, so he, he gave me his Olympus camera, put a roll of film in there, set the camera because I had no idea how to, where to, how to set the lens or the, you know, the exposures or whatever. He set it to exactly the right way it should be and just told me, you know, we got, what do you got to lose? Shoot it. So I did, and the funny thing is I shot the whole roll, and one picture influenced me to, to start doing this myself. Out of, out of those 36 pictures, they all came out like crap, except I got a perfect shot of Eddie Van Halen. And uh, that was enough. And the very next thing I knew, it was Slash playing at Fairfax High School. June, it was actually June 4th of 1982, so it was like two months later. And it was a daytime gig. It was during lunchtime. So you didn't really need to know how to set the camera. It was not tricky lighting. So I shot my roll of film off pretty quick, actually. Uh, and um, I was very happy with those results. And I took, this time I didn't use Jack's camera. I used my sister's Canon AE-1. And she had like a telephoto lens. And uh, the camera, it, it, what it did is it, it made everything blurry behind Slash. So it made it look like professional pictures. It looked really, mm. it looked like one of those festivals where they take that shot of Joe Perry and then you see the crowd is all blurry. It's one of those deals. And so I was like, wow, I could do this. So then I started from that point on, I started any concert we went to, whether we saw Asia, the Santa Monica Civic or Judas Priest or whatever, it didn't matter. We snuck in our camera and we shot. So Iron Maiden, you know, whatever. So that was that. But at the same time, I was following Slash because I knew he was superhuman and because uh, I had known him from since 1976, and everything he did was extraordinary. And so, it is, you know, his artwork, his bike riding, I was actually taking pictures with the, Insta, the 110 film for those little Instamatic cameras, uh, him jumping off the Brea tarpets and you know bunny hopping on to, on top of a car and or over a trash can without a jump that 's how strong he was. He was able to bunny hop over a trash can hmm. with no jump so anyways when it was only when, as soon as he started playing guitar uh and doing gigs, it was natural that of course i 'm going to document that too. I was already documenting when he was riding bikes, so now i 'm into music and he 's playing good music. And you can see how talented he was. And, you know, you get goosebumps when he'd do his guitar solo. So you knew he, he was, you know, something superhuman in there, like Eric Clapton or, you know, Beck or, or Hendrix. Some, you know, something was tasteful came out of there. And so I just, it was, and he was fun to look at because he had a good image. So he was a good target. So that's, I, of course, even though I was shooting other things and so was Jack, uh, I was following Slash, but then as soon as Slash joined Guns N' Roses, and that was more of a real band, because the other bands were like garage bands, and they never really did anything but play parties, uh, then Jack started shooting them, too, because he, he saw that, you know, he knew Slash also. Uh, we were all friends for many years before he even, you know, before, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses even happened. So Jack knew Slash from, from me from, like, say, 1982-ish. I'm sorry, 1980. So five years before Guns N' Roses even started, Slash was friends with Jack, too. So, of course, Jack was going to come. In fact, Jack shot Black Sheep, which was, uh, that was actually May 31st of, the, of, of 85. So it was a week before the very first Guns N' Roses show with the Appetite for Destruction lineup. So Jack actually, you know, got one jump on that and shot 
Slash for that. And he also did some offstage shots with Slash when he was looking for a band between 84 and 85 just to, you know, to put ads in the recycler. And, and wow. you know, so Jack did the, the, Jack always did the photo shoots for that. Even when Guns N' Roses needed a photo shoot, Jack always did it because Jack was the photographer. I, I, yes, I got some good shots, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a photographer. I consider myself someone that knows a good shot and when to pull the trigger, but I never really, you should see, maybe I got 15,000 photos, uh, probably 10,000 of them didn't come out because I didn't know what the hell I was doing as far as mm. setting the camera lens at different lights. I only, I only knew certain things would work, and what I knew always did work, but what I didn't know, my best guess didn't really work because I never learned really how to use the camera. But So that is exactly the second reason why Jack did all the, the offstage shots because God knows, you, you didn't have digital cameras then. Exactly. So the, the band <laughs> wants a, a shoot for uh, flyers or something, and of course Jack is going to do it because Jack, Jack hits a home run every time. So if I did it, who knows? It could be overexposed, underexposed. I didn't know, you know how to set the lighting, the camera lenses and all that stuff. Okay. How do both, because I want to get to some uh, fan questions, and we're actually kind of getting them in, in real time because I just posted and tweeted uh, that you guys are going to be on together and get some uh, questions from Facebook and Twitter. But I want this is obviously a question to both of you. Uh, the book came out in 2007. How do you both feel about it now in 2019, Reckless Road, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction? Because you may not have said that you didn't have a certain vision or technical stuff, but what you put together here, I feel like it's the same care that you put into your your deli, like you, you had your hands on everything. Do you, is there any, well, how do you I'll, feel today? I'll tell you, I feel the same today as I felt back then. Uh, by the way, that book was actually, the manuscript for that book was put together in the summer of 1993, and it took 15 months at five hours a day, approximately five hours a day. Years, right? It wow. took it no it so it took it took fifteen months to put together the manuscript, but at that time the band sort of fell apart and, and I had an agent that was greedy and he I didn't want anything I just wanted the book out for the fans, but the agent wanted like a seventy five thousand dollar advance and people weren't going to pay that when the, the band was falling apart so mm. it got shelved for it was sitting for twelve years and wow. I just happened by accident to bump into the people that found out about it and wanted to put it out and of course I was excited to get it out but. In the end, it, the reason why, and actually the publisher that put it out did a good job in, in, in editing it because it doesn't look anything like my manuscript. It's just, yes, it's the same photos, but they they designed it better than, than I thought I did. I mean, okay. I made it like a scrapbook, and I, yeah, I put the flyer and the ticket stub, and, you know, I put useless information. Well, I call it useless information, but little things that happened that day or what was going on around that time as kind of like to fill it in. We didn't start doing interviews until the pub, until I got a publisher that thought we could add a little more color to it by having with the bands uh, what they have to say. The reason is because when I did it, there was going to be a biography on the band that Del James was doing, and I was just going to be doing the scrapbook, and you know, with maybe a little information, but not too much, more so driven by the pictures and the flyers. Uh, but the, uh, that book, the, uh, the book Dell was working on, got scrapped when the band fell apart, and so the publisher wanted more color and interviewed a few band members. And then I thought, you know what? If we're going to add to this, why don't we talk to the roadies 
and the strippers and their girlfriends and, and the record company people, Tom Zutad and Mike Klink, because everybody's got a different angle on it right. or their own story. Mm-hmm. And, so, and even some of the stories are wrong that are in there, but they still got printed. And um, well, hold on a second. Did I never push the button? No, it's all good. Are you guys at the deli right now? Yeah, I'm, yeah. At, I'm at the deli. They're trying, <laughs> to, they're trying to call me on the intercom. Um, but anyways, um, sorry, I, I don't mean to keep you from your bagel. No, 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 that's, the, that's fine. <laughs> so what, what would I say? I was saying about, um, oh yeah. So I was trying to just do the, you know, the fun scrapbook for the ultimate fan to have, but, oh yeah. Oh no, I know. I know. I got it. So some people remember a story and they get something wrong, right? And, but it's, it's their word. So the publisher actually printed it, but what I didn't even get a chance to look at it uh, or edit it. It was, it was the publisher. There was a lot of shady things going on. They, he misappropriated some of the money that was the investors put in, and he was in a rush to get it out because he wanted to get that money. He figured if it comes out quicker, he'll be able to pay that money back that he sort of borrowed. Uh, and, and so it was a mess. But there was there's some things, believe it or not, as great as it is, there's a few things that that I would love to go in there and change and typos and whatever else, but. In the end, it's it's you know it started out as a 2,000 images in the book, and now it came out to like 900 images. So <laughs> I actually put it, right. I actually when I had 2,000 images, I did this on purpose. I took all the best photos, which I knew were too many, but I figured the band when they look at it, they're going to want some out or whatever. You know, everyone has their own opinion on on certain things. But um, what actually when I showed Axel the manuscript, he loved it. And he didn't ask for any photos to come out. Actually, there was one he didn't want in there, but it wasn't because of what he looked like. It was because someone else was in the photo that he didn't think needed to belong, you know, belonged in, in, in the book. But in the end, yes, I took the one photo out, but he left me with the job of, of figuring out which, how to edit down 2,000 to, you know, 900. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it, it's still, of course, it's going to be good because we shot every show between me and Jack. Uh, and then I stopped shooting because I started videotaping. When I stopped shooting, Jack was shooting. So uh, I, although as crazy as I am in OCD, I would always bring my camera even though I was videotaping. And sometimes if I saw something that I just had to have, I would, I would you know, shoot five, six photos off and, uh, just for the hell of it and leave the video on wide angle for a second and grab something. But uh, for the most part, Jack is filled in more than I did towards the end. Okay. If if I may ask, uh, what in there is, is incorrect, or do you feel that is incorrect? No, there's just little tidbits. Uh, like it's, I'll give you an example. Willie Bass from Black Sheep, what he was talking about when Slash was in the band, that they did a couple of gigs, one at the Troubadour, one at the Country Club, but that's not true. They never played the Troubadour. Slash only played one gig and then quit. So it's just, it's not a big deal, but it's not okay. true. Okay. It's not true, but it is. It did come out of his mouth, so the publisher felt those were his words, you know. And it's. I, I know it's stupid, but <laughs> that, when you, when you're a perfectionist like me, you wanted you want to get the. De- well, I, I say I'm a perfectionist, but I'm a little OCD, so I want to do my best job to make sure no stones are unturned. So you want to do if you can fix it and you read it and you know it's wrong, why not take it out? Why not just take that line out? You know. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I completely get that. And then Desi, Izzy's girlfriend, said something that totally wasn't true, that she was dancing, but then Axel, she said Axel got jealous because she was getting more attention because she was the hot girl. But it's just the opposite. 
because she was a hot girl, Axel put her in the show to so the fans would get a better show. So, it, you know, why did they scrap her? Because, um, you know, it was, a, it was <laughs> she was a, a bad seed with drugs, and, 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 and Axel was trying to, you know, get, you know, eliminate that from the show. So, uh, or, no, or at least from, from, you know, hanging around the band. So, you know, people get things wrong, and there's, it's, not, it's not a big deal, but it's, you know, I, I like to fix it if I could. Do you and Jack have a personal, can you pick a favorite photo in the book, or is it kind of like picking your, your children? Is there one that stands out, maybe not just because of it's a cool picture, but the story behind it? Do you, each of you have a favorite? I, I See, I do fine art photos, and people want to kill me because I have like 20 of them because they're all my favorite. And they all mean something else. They, I mean, they all mean something different, depending, you know, if, whether they debuted a song that night or it was, you know, uh, uh, two seconds after they got off stage and they were taking a breath like five days before they got signed. So th- there's different things for, you know, if you're looking for just a guitar photo, I, I, I have one or two that are my favorite of Slash. But, you know, it, it's hard to say. But I know one thing. There's photos I like of Jack's that he doesn't think are that good. So... Exactly. <laughs> Why'd you take that shot? <laughs> but so, but uh, so you know, I'm sure Jack has his favorite shots in the book, and the deli shot made me famous. Well, the deli, yeah, the, yeah. the deli yeah. shot, the yeah. deli shot is the money shot, and yeah. there's no doubt about it. Most people think I shot that simply because it was at Canners, and it's the cover of Reckless Road. But as, uh, as I told you before, that was a, an off-stage photo shoot for a flyer for for. Uh, uh, the Stardust Ballroom, which was, I believe, was like June 28th of 1985. The people that, by the way, the people that collect that flyer or bought it on eBay, if it says photo by Jack Lou on the side, it's a bootleg. And the reason why is when they made that photo, they didn't give Jack, and when they made that flyer, they didn't give Jack photo credit. They just made, they, they used the photo, made the flyer, and passed it out, and that was that. Wow. Years later, in 2000, 1993, when I was doing the book, I actually took one of the flyers and wrote that in there so that he would get the credit for it in the book. I didn't know that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so here's the thing. Wow. Now it's in the book, and what people do is they make, a, you know, they Xerox it or whatever, you know, scan it, and then they pretend, they make a flyer, and they pretend that they're, they're selling them on eBay for 20 bucks or whatever, and they're trying to say it was an original flyer, but I can spot it from a mile away because it says photo by Jack Lou. And so, like I said, that that didn't get in, put in until 1993. So oh, wow. I have I have like a hundred original fly, flyers at home. Oh, of that of that gig. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I always tell people if you see one without it saying "photo by Jack Lou," then that's the real photo. But but back to that photo. That photo is really important because uh, Flash and Steven had just joined the band literally like a week before that. Uh, you know, Slash had quit Black Sheep that night after the gig. And their first gig, you know, was June 6th. So it was literally six days after Slash played with Black Sheep. And Steven, they knew from Hollywood Rose. So they, you know, they, uh, Tracy was out and Rob Gardner was out. Uh, and they didn't want to go up to Seattle to do that little tour that Duff booked. Or they didn't know where they were going to stay or how they were going to get there. And they were right because the, 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 the transportation turned out it broke down 150 miles north of here. So, you know, you know, everyone knows the hell tour story, so they had to hitchhike and steal food from farms and whatever. You know, they get, they play a gig, and then the guy didn't want to pay them for the gig because they really didn't bring anyone, you know, any, any people to see him. 
in the end, they did get some money out of the guy, and, and someone gave him a ride home. But they were tired and hungry, and but they knew they were they suffered a little bit together on the road. So it kind of made them like they had each other's backs, and they also knew that they were the right fit of musicians, perfect fit. And so the the puzzle was complete. Now they get back here, and the first thing they do is book a gig. And now they need a flyer. So they come to Canners for two reasons. They need a photo shoot from Jack, and they're starving. So, you know, <laughs> that food is always free, of course. <laughs> and uh, so if you, look at their, if you look at that photo carefully, you'll see the, the hunger in their eyes. Of They know they got something. Yet that lineup has, they, they didn't even write a song yet. The first song that that lineup put together was Welcome to the Jungle, which didn't debut until July 20th at the Troubadour. But so here we are in June, it's a month before that. You know, right they just but they knew they clicked. So, you know, they started writing songs after that and every song they put together, you know, first came Jungle, then came Rocket Queen, then came uh Paradise City, then uh came Night Train, then came My Michelle, then came Out to Get Me. There was no throwaway songs. Wow, and, no, and, right. and the songs they put together were ready right down to the guitar solo. Every one of those songs, the first time they played them, Rocket Queen, Jungle, not Paradise City, but My Michelle, they, the guitar solo was the same as you hear it on Appetite for Destruction. So whatever Slash decided to rip out at that rehearsal the very first time they played it, it worked, and he just remembered it. And then when the gig was there, he threw that one out of the gig. And then the next gig, he's remembered that solo, and he... You know, then it's time to record the record, and, it, you know, that's just the solo. There it is. So it, the songs pretty much, they, they produced and arranged their own music, uh, you know, on, on how it was, it was just a perfect fit. You can't really say, well, who was more important in the band? At what percentage of 100 would you just say Axel or Slash or Izzy or Duff? The problem is if you give them all a value, that value is going to add up to, like, 280% because... It just, they're all so valuable that whatever percentage you say, well, this guy's worth that amount of percent, it doesn't add up to 100 because that's how, that's what a perfect match they were and how valuable they were. So there was no, there was no junk. It was all good. So, you know, that, back to that photo, you could see the hunger in their eyes and they were anxious to, to go out and, and rip up LA with, and, and write songs and, and, and you know, and do it. And yeah, sure, they had a couple songs under their belt from different lineups, like Don't Cry and Think About You and Move to the City, Anything Goes, from, you know, different lineups that, that and you knew there was something there to that, uh, but it was not until you got that exact lineup, and it didn't really matter who wrote the song, it's, it was who started the song and then who added this and who added that, and it was, it was you know, different con contributions from pretty much the whole band and everyone tweaks you know adds what their two cents to it and and you have you have them living together in a shoebox uh writing and you know one guy's strumming the guitar the other guy says hey play that again i got an idea and then they change it a little bit and then so you know they're all there later on sure they wrote good music but they weren't living together and so it would be more so one guy writes something, has an idea and sends a tape, and they, the other people listen to it and they add something. But it, it's, as good as it still was, it wasn't the same method uh, of living on the streets and, and sure writing about being chased by the cops or which girl ripped you off or, you know, whatever. But um, it's, it's, 
it gave them the perfect storyline. You know, that the, the material was there. They were living, whatever life they were living gave them the material as far as the lyrics go. You know, the melody, that's their own talent, and, and, and that's something they're born with. Um, the guitar writing, you know, the, 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 the music is, is also their own talent and something that, that they develop. But how it fit with them working off each other at, in 1985, 1986, it just, you know, the music industry was kind of dead and uh, punk had died out and rock and roll was gone. And you had some some heavy metal or hard, you know, you still had like Judas Priest around or someone like that, but uh, it, it just wasn't, the Motley Crue was around doing a few things, but it, it wasn't anything promising, really. And they just said, no, 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 we, we know what good music is, and we grew up with good music from the 70s and late 60s, and, and, and they just were all on the same page. So, you know, they were able to really, you know, click together and and, and put out music. That that they they were doing it for themselves. They put up music that they enjoyed to play, and they were proud of it. And and you know they'd go play a gig, and they would play that new song. And and, and um, you know people, I would record those shows. And after the show, I you know sometimes I heard those songs for the first time as the audience did. I didn't. I would maybe I wasn't at a rehearsal where they. I was at a rehearsal where they were putting together Rocket Queen, but. Um, <clears throat> I didn't like Welcome to the Jungle. I didn't see them work on it. It just happened. I I got to the gig and they had a new they had a new song on the on that set list and hmm. I heard it the first time everyone else heard it in that crowd and but the difference is everyone else went home. I went home and I had a tape of it. That was the difference. I popped it in my car and listened to it, you know, the next day. Uh and knew, you know, the value of that song and knew how good it was. So Everyone else knew it was good, but they don't know what they exactly. You you can't hear a song for the first time live and think you you're going to remember that song right. or how it went. You just remembered it. It was pretty cool, but you don't sure you know how exactly it went until you hear it a couple of times. Yeah, especially if it's the first time you're living in the moment, you really don't know what's happening, you know, or and, can fully process it. For and sure. I'm shooting, and Jack's shooting. When, when you're shooting, you're distracted. You know, my my. I don't know how Jack would do it, but I, I not only was I shooting, I was recording it, and, and so I had to get to a place where the where the everything sounds good, and where the microphone's not going to get. You know, I used to stick it in my side pocket and have a, a little jack, a little headphones jack, and I clip it onto my watch, and um, so you had to be careful not to make too much noise as far as what you rub against or, you know, those kinds of things. And then you also, to get a good bird's eye view of what you want to shoot and, you know, is there a tall guy in front of you or, you know, can you get group shots from this angle? And the places started, you know, the word got out and they started the first gig with, you know, maybe 50 people and then before you know it, there's 200 people and then pretty soon it's sold out. We were putting ads in BAM Magazine, a couple quarter-page ads and one at the Roxy, one at the Troubadour, and that, that helped crowds and then we put full page ads and as soon as we do that they started selling out gigs that was their first sold out gig was i think it was november 22nd of 1985 at the troubadour and that was a full page ad and bam but by then the word was already spreading that there was something there but the full page ad helped because they got a full page ad let's go see you know we heard these guys were good so now we have to go check it out a lot of forward thinking, because it's not like today where everyone is a photographer with their phones or 
can upload or blog or can send uh, invites on Facebook. You had that mindset before it was really common to to have that that kind of mindset. So um, so I, I want to get to some questions. We're, we're kind of getting into some real time, which is great because I know it's a, a pre recorded podcast. Uh, a lot of people, I, I, I put it out there, they had any questions for you and Jack, and of, of course if they own uh, Reckless Road. So this is from uh, Twitter from Jerry Klusky, and he says, yes, I own it and I love it. Ask Mark if he has spoken to Axel since about the book and what his opinion of it is, because you mentioned that he saw the, the storyboard of it. And he said, goes on the, the finish by saying Axel should be very proud of what Mark has put together. Well, that, you're asking a question that's kind of convoluted. Nothing to do with Axel, nothing to do with me. A third party got involved. Obviously, at the time that my book was coming out, it was at a time when Axel was not on speaking terms with Slash. And, and so, you know, he was focusing on Chinese democracy, and it was kind of a distraction. Uh, so, you know, he, was, he didn't actually support it at the time mm. it was coming out. But he did. He obviously liked the material because he, you know, he loved it. When I put it together, the manuscript, he saw it and a couple of times, and he was happy. But then he was not, you know. It, after that, he was in a divorce, pretty much with Slash, and you know there was legal battles and whatever else. So it, it wasn't. It was. It was ugly. So it's hard for you know. It's hard for him to really comprehend the importance of the fan getting that material. And so, but I knew it was history, and we weren't going to bury it, and so it's got to come out. And it doesn't matter what you're doing now. It matters, you know, if you had children with a previous marriage, you still you still like those children. Yeah, that's uh, you point. know, you might not like the wife or the husband or whatever, but you still you still love the kids. So you can't knock this, the 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 things they did together. But for Axel, who was very emotional, it was it was hard on him. And so I went into sort of intervention mode, I guess, because some of the people around him were yesing him to death. And, and I knew, you know, Axel, Axel used to look to me for advice sometimes because he knew I was around in the beginning and I wasn't there to bullshit him. And he would call on me and from time to time, and, and I would give him, you know, sometimes we'd argue about things. But in the end, he, he respected my opinion. But he was actually very hurt that I, he felt betrayed that, I was going to put this book out at that time. Uh, you know, he might have supported it later on, but it didn't. There was no later on. It, it was already sitting twelve years. Yeah, I was about to say it wasn't your fault. That I, I, it was shelving. No, I, years. I wasn't even looking for a publisher at the time, but I wasn't going to turn it down. It, it had to come out. But anyways, long story short, I didn't know I had a third party rooting against me at that time, and so I, I, the, the, the playing field wasn't exactly level, and my intervention wasn't working. And I knew he was reading, you know, when, I, when it first came out, I'd go on chat boards and curious to see what people are talking about. And, and if they had any questions, I'd answer them. You know, the, some of the, there was online material that wasn't working properly. So I'd kind of go there and help them. But when I got there, I noticed there was this big feud going on between Axel and Slash fans, uh, blaming each other for everything. And I'd yeah. kind of get in there and clean it up and say, it's nobody's fault. You know, they just need a little break, and they, whatever their differences, they could definitely work them out. You know, get a family therapist and sit down. You know, each of you separately, and then when the family therapist knows your issues, then you at some point you sit together and you could work it out. It was nothing. It's not like somebody shot someone's mother. It was all things that could be. I knew both sides of it tight because Axel would tell me exactly his feelings, and I knew what Slash's feelings were. So I, I knew that 
there was miscommunication there and it could be resolved. So hmm. my hopes were whenever I did interviews, I was secretly talking to Axel. I, I would answer the question hoping Axel's listening and in an intervention kind of a way to, hmm. you know, but, and he was listening at the beginning. And I think at some point they stopped, they, they, they blocked him from looking at some of that stuff, but um, which I was not even aware of until later. But I didn't give up. I stayed on it for nine years, actually. And at some point, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what triggered them talking. I really don't. But I know I planted seeds, at least in the earlier years when I was doing that. And, and Axel did respect my opinion a lot. So even though he was disappointed in me, you knew that, that, that he's got to wonder, why would Mark say this? You know, and I'm sure it was stuck in his brain. You can't unring a bell. Once he's heard me say it, he, he, he knows what I had to say. So in the end, they, obviously, they worked out their differences, and it, and it got good. But that third party didn't really want me around because um, they were trying to control everything. And so, you know, of course, they were rooting against me. So I, I, to be honest with you, I never patched up with Axel, uh, but I will someday. It, it, it's only a matter of time. It, but I, I'm too busy in my world to worry about it. What I'm happy about is I don't have to sit there and push for that intervention because it's already done they got mm -hmm. back together so it was such a relief i used to go daily on chat boards and and, and i would do whatever i could to get under axel's skin so he to just be in his face and you know put it out there put the same message out there but like i said he wasn't really looking at that point so i was pretty much wasting my time but like it doesn't matter now because Every, it, it, they're together, so that's all that matters. I mean, you're just describing the actions of a good friend. That's that's pretty much all you're doing. And somebody who is a fan of the band and a fan of these people, just like well, their fan base is, which is just uh, great. And of course, out of respect, and I just want to acknowledge for people who may say, I'm not going to ask you who this third party may be. It's you know, out of respect. No, no, uh, we're just going to leave it at that. But yeah, exactly. It, it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It just. It, it, you know, it is what it is. It's it's not Axel. I don't blame Axel because probably 99% of people that need an intervention, regardless what it is, won't agree with the intervention. So sure. you know, there's, there's like very few people that know. Thank you for doing this. You're right. I need this. You know, most people say that you're. You know, that nobody likes an intervention of, that needs it. So it was going to be. It was a hard task, but. Uh, you know, and I, I feel bad for not doing it sooner, actually, because I was probably one of the only ones that still talked to both parties. Uh, so I was a, I was in position to, I mean, if that was going to get done. It happened you know, the way it was meant to happen. If, yeah, if that was going to get done 20 years ago, I was in the position to do that. And I feel guilty that I didn't really attempt to do it until after I had to do it when the book came out. And, oh, and I, okay. But it doesn't matter. I, I'm happy with the result. And, and Axel is doing well, and I'm you know proud that he was able to go out with ACDC, and and and, and I knew he could do the Bon Scott stuff, but that was the, so Brian Johnson stuff is really impressive that he was able to pull that off. And Agreed. So I'm proud of you know of what he's doing. Yeah, right on. I think we all are. All right, some more uh, some more questions, and I, I I won't keep you too long. I know you got to go back to uh, making the donuts, uh, so to speak. <laughs> uh, this is from Ages Girl on on Twitter. Do you think a GNR biopic would be a great or a terrible idea? Well, okay, so <laughs> there was one. In, uh, James Franco was actually got a hold of Reckless Road, and he wanted to put one together from based on you know really? Reckless Road. 
Uh, this was a few years back, maybe, I don't know, 2014, something like that. But um, I didn't, I mean, sure, he, I would love for that to happen. But, of course, it, there's a lot of, you know, first they got to get the rights to it and whatever, you know, as far as, like, the music and, the you know, obviously the band has to get involved. And at that time they still weren't together, so that was going to be a hat trick. I, I told James all the all the, the challenges and, and that are going to be there, but they he liked the book so much. They still, you know, put together a deal uh, to do to, you know, to attempt to make that to get that done, or at least, you know, to see if they can get the rights to it, which they didn't, and so it got scrapped. But the thing with the biopics is they could be hit and miss. It's, right. It's hard to find someone to play you, and get it right. And if you're one person, it's easier to do. You know, the Queen one came out pretty good. Um, actually, and that's not more, that's not one person. That's more than one person. But uh, you, you never know. It, it, it could be hit and miss. And but it, there's such good stories there, and how that all came about. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's definitely you know three movies just out of that club days. Is you know uh, you can take hell toward make a whole movie just out of that. Um, no, you're right, but, and that's what I was thinking. That's what I wanted the dirt to be. And if there ever is a GNR one, like if it came to Netflix, I would want it to be a series, not just a one and done movie. I would love to see a a ten part, you know, Guns N' Roses series on on Netflix. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard to do it when you, sure. you know, it's to find the right people. You know, that was such a unique band. I, I don't know. Maybe you could find people that that might look the part, but. It, it just it, it could be hit and miss. It's it's something that will probably be done when they're when they're gone, and they're not here to stop it, because mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden everyone jumps on on that on that on that bandwagon of making money off you after you're dead. But uh, true, you know so that that always happens. But I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it, it I think it could be good. But uh, when I was involved in this, I was trying to make give myself some power to make sure if it was bad that I could stop it. That's the only thing I cared about is, is, is having my input. You know, whether, if the band signs off on it, which was a very slim chance, I had input to make sure that I, could, I had a kill button to make sure I could say yes or no on something because I have, I have that obligation not to, you know, to make sure things are, are, are done the best way they could be done. And if it started going the wrong way, you know, I, I, wouldn't, want, I, don't, I wouldn't want to see the story get twisted or... You know, I hate that it was a problem. You know, I, I, I'm a detail person, and when they do stupid things like in the Queen movie, they, we all know that 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 uh, We Will Rock You was from 1977, and they have it three years later. Now, why did they do that? Who, who was not catching that? I mean, that, yeah, that, I do. <laughs> the, the band is involved. They, 1977 happened in that movie. Why didn't they write that song then? Why are they in the studio and it says 1980 and they're writing that song? I would never let a detail like that go by. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm more meticulous on, on, on getting things right. And there is a lot of good stories. And it, it, the truth is, everyone wants the, the sensationalism, but the truth is there's a good story just based on the music. Agreed. And, and, yeah. and how they put songs together, and how good these songs were, and how important you know it, it. You know, we we were lucky, Jack and I, to be there, to watch it uh, grow into what it did. I knew they were going to make it. I just was worried: will they live, <laughs> uh, or or you know, or or not break up 
from a, a, a fight or something, or not. Some of them end up in jail or whatever. But you know, I, I knew if they could stay together, and at, at, at some point they were going to put a record out. That's because I, I believed in the music right off the start because I, I knew it was good enough. To me, it was like watching Led Zeppelin or Aerosmith or a band like that caliber because uh, they had the image, they had the sound, they had the songwriting, they had the vocals, they had the guitar playing. So they had like five different elements, and a lot of these bands make it just on one or two of those elements. So the chances of them making it, if they could get to the right, you know, to the to the right people were very high, so I didn't know that, that MTV would, you know, catapult them as far as they did. I figured, yeah, they'd be, they'd have a gold record out, you know, maybe a platinum one, uh, that kind of a thing, because you, you knew the songs were good. But you never thought it would be the heights that it hit. No, but I, I did. There were certain tells uh, when they played the street scene uh, the first time, which was in September. Let's see, was it September twenty eighth, nineteen eighty five? They were, before that they had only played in front of 200 people, and that gig there was like 2,000, 3,000 people there, and could have been 5,000, who knows? And they were opening for Social Distortion, and the, the they, Guns was supposed to go on at 5:30. GNR opened for Social Distortion. Yep. Oh I, wow, I never knew that. Uh, and but it was it was a street festival, so there was probably 10 bands on. You know, I won't say they opened; they were the band before Social. Understood. Distortion. Got it. So, uh, anyways, Social Distortion was a well-known band, so the, the, the L.A. punkers were out there waiting for their band, and, you know, they had to sit through a bunch of crap before that. And then, it, you know, if, if Guns N' Roses was supposed to go on at 5.30, that means that Social D was going on at 6. Meanwhile, it's 8.30, and Guns is taking the stage. So, you know, they're irritated. Now they see Guns N' Roses, they don't know who they are. They, all they know is it's not Social Distortion. So they wanted them off. So they started shaking the stage, spitting at them, throwing, you know, throwing food at them. But Guns N' Roses, they held on, and they, they basically won that crowd over. And it was at that gig when I realized they're a stadium band. Uh, and so even though the stage wasn't a stadium, it was, it was bigger than what they were. No, actually, it wasn't bigger than, than what they were used to. Actually, it was a little smaller, but they handled that crowd right, right. perfectly, perfectly. <laughs> And so that's what that was like an extra bonus. And then I saw it a second time when they played the Santa Monica Civic, but that was like uh, probably a year later, and uh, I think it was August 30th, a year later, 1986. They were opening up for Ted Nugent, and Black and Blue was the second, the actual opener. And Guns N' Roses was just thrown on the bill just because they were from LA, and someone had some clout and got them on there for probably Tom Zutat or somebody like that. And, uh, you know, that, that that crowd was there to see Black and Blue and Ted Nugent. They had pretty much no idea who GNR was other than a handful of people. And they, they won that crowd over, too. And, and, you know, that was Santa Monica Civic. And it was not sold out, but it was pretty full. So that was another tell that it was going to work, you know. Wow. Those people, didn't hear, those people didn't, weren't familiar with the songs. Your memory is just, uh, is just phenomenal. Um, I want to get to more questions because I know we're going uh, a bit of overtime. And again, I, I know you guys are, are busy and I appreciate you, you giving me your, your time today on a Sunday. This is from on Facebook. This is from Scott Dryborough, Dryberg rather. Uh, Mark is such a lovely bloke. Can you please pass on a collective huge thanks from all of us mad GNR fans around the world? I guess the big question for Mark is why it's seen, why he seems to be excluded 
from the big reconciliation over the past few years, although that may be a sensitive question and not right to ask. So if it's not right to ask, you don't have to answer it. Well, I, I already did answer it, sort of. I told you it was a third party third got party. involved that okay. that didn't want that wanted to control everything and and was trying to get rid of me even before the book. So there was I didn't realize it until later on. There was some things that that I pieced together later on that were that were tells that this was coming. Mm-hmm. And there was a handful of other people that were very close to Axel that were all of a sudden no longer in Axel's life. That but these are people that would have donated a body part to Axel. So, you know, it, 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 people that still care about him. So, it, it, you know, that's basically what it's come to. But okay. it's, 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 it's possible for me to, to get to solve that issue, but there'd be a chain reaction of other problems. So it, it's just better off left as is, and it's fine. All right, fair enough. Uh, this is from uh, Nick Van Hess, also on Facebook. Since you're so great with dates, uh, what bands opened up for GNR at the Whiskey April 5th, 1986? I found two flyers for that show. One said Faster Pussycat and Angels in Vain. Another flyer said Pussycat and Shanghai. So it was sh- it was Shanghai for sure. Um, I don't remember. You remember that, that Mark? <laughs> I remember it, uh, but <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. What I don't remember. Oh wait, 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 wait! Tammy was there that night because they did a they did a, a strip con a strip tea, a strip whatever you call it contest, and Tammy was the MC on it. So it's possible that Tammy may have opened the show, uh, but I don't remember. I don't. I can't confirm that a hundred percent. I just know he was there and he was running the strip contest. That was right before GNR took the stage. But Shanghai definitely was an opener, but I don't remember if Faster Pussycat played. Also, I don't remember. Okay. And if you happen to go on the uh, the AFD Facebook page, uh, Nick posted it. He's working on a pen drawing of that uh, that flyer, and it looks phenomenal, his pen drawing. Uh, another question. This is from Josh Lewis. Maybe you know from Anita Squeeze, the original guitarist of Warrant. So he wants to know, Mark, if you have any photos of Warrant from the Curly Joe's New Year's, New Year's Party, 83-84, with the road crew, Pyrus, and Warrant. That's very good. That's very funny. Yes, I know Josh. Um, I might have one picture. I have to. I have to look. I, I definitely have a picture of Pyrus because it was in the book, which, by the way, was Tracy Gunn's band. Right. Uh, but Warren, yes, Josh was the original guitar player in Warren, and somehow he got eaten up by the rest of the band. And he somehow, even though it was his band, it when they by the time they made it, he was gone. Um, don't ask me how that happens. How, how does how does other members take over a band that it's you started? It's unreal. I mean, Josh is a former guest of the show, so and I highly recommend anyone listen to his story uh, as well. In addition, he, he also roadied for Slash in Hollywood Rose, uh, one gig at uh, Madame Wong's West. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, uh, this one is for you, Jack. This is from Jan Henrik from Germany. He wants to know. I guess Mark, you can also answer this. If you saw any GNR gigs with Tracy. Uh, no. No? No? Okay. Never shot in those. Uh, okay. Um, this one, let me see, and I, I'll, I'll just get a couple more in here, because we got so many questions, guys, and then, by the way... Well, hold, hold on a minute. I saw, well, you know, because you have the book, but I saw L.A. Guns with Axel, so that's, okay. almost, that's like, it's it actually pretty was, it, it actually was Guns N' Roses minus the Izzy, because when Guns N' Roses, for the Guns N' Roses 1, version 1, had Uli as a bass player... Rob Gardner, Tracy Guns, Axel, and Izzy. So the LA Guns that I saw two gigs of 
had exactly those members minus the Izzy. So it was a four-piece without the Izzy. And the only difference is when they Axel left, and the, but when later on, like eight months later, they got back together, it was a project that was Hollywood Rose and Guns N' Roses team up to give you Guns N' Roses. I'm sorry, Hollywood Rose and L.A. Guns team up to give you Guns N' Roses. So it was not going to be, did Tracy join Axel's band or did Axel join Tracy's band? It was going to be, we start a new band together. And so, in, in a way, I saw that, but without Izzy. Okay. that's Wow, that's, that's still pretty amazing. Uh, two more for you guys. Uh, and there's more questions. I just can't get to them all. Uh, Johan Batista, he wants to know about any uh, releasing any, quote, new footage that you haven't released yet, 86, 87 gigs, et cetera. Well, I, I, I have lots of footage, obviously, that's not released. And, and the best thing for that to ever be happening is, is waiting for a good project that the band puts out, like a box set or, you know, a documentary, something like that. What do you uh, think about the box set, by the way? And that was a question uh, also from 80s Girl on Twitter. What did you feel about the box set that was put out? Well, the box set, it's always good to put a box set out with, with little memorabilia and things like that. As far as the, the material, I'm glad they finally, you know, it's very strange, but you're not going to believe this, but I never heard sh- that version of Shadow Your Love until the box set. Oh, wow. I know Mike Klink recorded it, and that's what Axel, you know, said, oh, you got the job. But I never, you know, many years, right after that, I always said to Mike, every time I saw him, I, got, I never heard, you know, Shadow, Shadow Your Love was one of my favorite songs. So... I said, I got to hear it one day. Okay, okay, I'll bring it one day. But I never got to hear it. So for that alone, you, you, you had me at Shadow Your Love. But could it have been a better project? Sure. If, you know, if I would have, if they won't work with me for, you know, those reasons I told you. But uh, I have the first time they played every one of their songs, 10 of their songs from Appetite for Destruction, the first time they were ever performed. I have that. So wow. imagine what kind of box set. Now, they're not all perfect, but... There's some of them are like that. Rocket Queen's pretty good. Uh, a couple of them are pretty good, but um, Welcome to the Jungle is actually pretty good. But there could have been some cool things done with that. But it doesn't mean that we missed the boat. You know, it's, there's there's always a future. I, I still have that stuff well preserved. Love your attitude, Mark. I really do. Uh, last question from Eric Peacher. This is most the most important question. Did anyone from the band? ever puke in Cantor's Deli. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I was just talking <laughs> last night, Slash puked in my car. Okay. <laughs> because I was trying to help Axel. I know that sounds strange. But <laughs> it does. after Hollywood Rose broke up, so this was like the summer of 1984, they, Axel then joined Tracy in LA Guns, and so it was like, Tracy was a rival guitar player of Slash in high school, and now that that guns and that Hollywood Rose broke up. Slash and Axel aren't talking. They're you know pissed off at each other. Axel calls me and because he likes my photos from Hollywood Rose and said, "Can you come shoot me in L.A. Guns? We're playing the Troubadour this Saturday at midnight." And I said, "Yeah, I'll help you." Meanwhile, I'm at a party with Slash at a mutual friend's house, and it's, it was a Saturday night, and um, it's like 10:30, and I got to get out of there because I got to start heading over to the the Troubadour. And Flash was depending on me for a ride home, and I can clearly see he was drunk off his ass, and it probably wasn't a good idea to, to, to move him. But I had to help Axel, and I couldn't tell Flash I was helping Axel. 
So I put him in my car, and all I had to do was drive about eight blocks away, literally. That's where he was going. And, of course, he puked. And where did he puke? Right in between the two seats. The worst <laughs> possible place you could think of. You couldn't pick a better place. I mean, it's just, or I should say a worse place. Right. But did they ever puke at Canners? No. Okay. <laughs> good, good, because you don't need that smell in there. No, but they, there was once a food fight. I left him alone for one second to go do something, and I came back, and there was food all over the walls. True. <laughs> Oh, well, I guess they didn't break anything, I guess. In the main room. And you know what? I was so mad at Slash because he should have known better uh, because you, you, don't, you don't shit where you eat, basically. And, it's a place <laughs> business. and so what I did was I took a strawberry whipped cream cake and I put it in his face. <laughs> now, if you think about it, it's not really a punishment. It's a good thing to have a strawberry whipped cream cake. Yeah, I just lick it off my face. <laughs> but that's what. But it goes in your hair, and it's a little inconvenient. And that's what that was his punishment. Oh, brilliant, uh, Mark. I mean, a lot of people are just commenting with photos taken with you at Cantor's Deli in that booth because it's not just a staple in the area. Fans from all over come to visit. It's a landmark, and it's been cool. I don't know if you've seen. Uh, Jack, people have taken that photo uh, on the cover of the book and kind of hold it up in front of the, you know, like, in, like in the, those Instagram photos where yeah. they'll hold up the picture in front of the uh, the booth and, and kind of make it look like they're they're, they're there now uh, in a way. I don't know if I'm describing that properly, but it's just a, it's still a beloved book uh, over a decade later. Uh, Mark. Thank you so much. You were an absolute pleasure to, to meet and, and speak with and just great stories uh, and such a great attitude. You know, I, that you're, you're rooting for your friends, and uh, I have hope for the future, too. I, I say now, anything is possible if Axel and Slash got back together again. That was mom and dad got back together again. So. Hell, hell froze over, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it happened in this lifetime. And, Jack, you know, you, you, were, you were great. Your, your laughter throughout the, the podcast made me laugh. And just uh, uh, there was something that, yeah, I thought it was a great story where, you know, Mark was saying – those uh, the the those photos that were bootlegged and you didn't know that, didn't know that. yeah flyers, my, flyers 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 right 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 the flyers and you didn't know that uh, Mark put your name on there to, to give you credit because you weren't originally given credit so that was cool to to to, to learn that together. Does the box set have the box set have the my name on it? I don't know. I don't. Ha- I, 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 <laughs> I, I don't own a box I, set. I didn't have a thousand dollars to spend on that box set, but <laughs> me neither. Send us one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I not. did get a pinball machine though. Oh, okay, all right. That's 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 not so not too bad. Uh, so I guess the best way, of course, for for Jack and Lou, everyone follow Jack on Instagram at Jack Lou L U E. Just a great follow, and you know, even on Facebook. I don't know if you've reached the Facebook friends limit. And Mark, is the best way for people to contact you either through Cantorsdeli dot com or MarkCantor dot com. Recklessroad.com is my, my personal email. But uh, I, I'm also on Instagram. Okay. I, I don't post much, but I go on there a lot. So if someone sends me a message, I'll get it. Okay, great. I think on instant, Instagram, you might be able to find me under Mark Cantor, but I think, I think the name's actually Reckless Road Book is what it is. Okay, great. And, I have, and again, thank you, Jack. The reason I, I finally had it in my possession before I interviewed Jack, uh, he, sent me, uh, he sent me an autographed copy. So, again, uh, thank you, Jack. That is proudly displayed in my new apartment. Hey. <laughs> well, the thank, thank you guys so much. 
And I guess you hope you both have a, a great day, and maybe we'll do this again. All right. No problem. Thanks, Brando. That was a ton of fun. Arguably two of the nicest guys that we've had on the podcast. Of course, Jack's second time, Mark's first time, and he was one of the names that came up, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the uh, the interview, uh, when, when this podcast first started. But I just felt he had done, at that time, so many interviews. I just didn't want to be just another one at the time and, and get the same story. So I didn't expect it to be 150 episodes in uh, to, to get Mark, to talk to Mark. But this is when it worked out, and I, I think it was a good time to speak with uh, somebody who has been featured in... Forgive me, I totally forgot in space to ask Mark about the Reels documentary, so hopefully if we get him on again, I'll ask him about that. But for someone who has had so much to say about GNR, I think we got a lot of new uh, and an updated uh, perspective from Mark Cantor on this episode, so I hope you appreciate it and enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, to keep things real, as the kids say, I recorded that episode a week ago as I'm recording this this outro of the episode right now. It's uh, October uh, 15th. If you've been following along on social media, I was at Austin City Limits weekend two. Guns N' Roses were amazing. And I'm going to share my review on Austin City Limits uh, most likely the ne- next episode because this, this was such a long interview and there's a lot to break down uh, at ASCL. So I want to uh, talk about the, the next episode, which is probably going to feature an interview with Dan Estrin, the guitarist from Hoobastank. Uh, so th- I actually spoke to him when I was on vacation. So I had to record the interview, uh, of course, on my phone, but you know, through the magic of radio and editing, I'll, I'll make it all uh, sound all, all purdy for you when I release it. But he had a lot to say about his tour with Velvet Revolver. So in addition, of course, talking about Hoobastank, uh, we'll talk about Velvet Revolver and Scott Weiland. So you don't want to miss that episode coming up. And since that's one of those shorter interviews that I do, I think that's where I'm going to talk about ACL and Rick, the band man, Dunsford. <laughs> I mean, as of today, again, the 15th of October, I believe Yahoo News has now picked up the fact that Rick Dunsford has been banned from all Guns N' Roses show for the rest shows for the rest of his life. Uh, if you haven't been following the story, just go on the internet and you'll bump into it. But Rick, a friend of the show, you know, I have I haven't met him in person, but we've spoken at length uh, on online and on the phone many times. Somebody who, unless he is a master manipulator and, and a liar. Uh, I tend to believe that he is just a person, one of many, who bought these Guns N' Roses song leaks. Did not sell them, did not do anything illegal other than just buy, amongst many other people, uh, this material. And he is the only one now banned. Rick, the band man Dunsford from Guns N' Roses uh, shows for the rest of his life. I hope that changes, but uh, I want to save my complete... Uh, thoughts and keep my rants again to uh, for another episode because so, uh, there's a lot to talk about there and I don't, I don't want to make this one uh, too much longer. So in addition to uh, Dan Estrin, that interview coming up uh, on the way, I have been speaking to Mr. Rod Jackson, former singer of Slash's Snake Pit, and he can't wait to come back on the show. I can't wait for him. It's going to be a very candid conversation. Uh, he has a lot to say. He's been through a lot emotionally. Um, but I think the the best part of speaking with him again and best part for him is the fact that he has new music for us. 
Okay, so I don't know if he's going to debut some of that on the podcast, but we're going to talk about it. And of course, you know, I'll, I'll ask you on social media if you have any questions for Rod. And he's a very, very honest guy, so um, I wouldn't hold back. So thank you once again for hanging out with me for another episode of Appetite for Distortion. I appreciate every single one of you for listening, for following on social media, subscribing on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, SoundCloud. Uh, you find us on AlternativeNation.net. I uh, actually got to meet, uh, finally, uh, the the evil empire. <laughs> I say that uh, between him and I as a friendly um, and a friendly gesture. I don't know how many of you feel about Brett Buchanan from Alternative Nation. I think I may have him come on uh, and see if he's available to talk about ACL because he was he was there too, and he got a lot a, a lot closer than I did to go see Guns N' Roses. So if you find us on altnation.net, I appreciate you uh, as well. iTunes are up there, Spotify. Again, however you're listening to my voice, thank you. So that does it for this episode of the AFD Show, number 150. When will you see the next uh, episode? When will you hear the future interviews? Well, in the words of Axel Rhodes concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know as soon as the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.